welcome to Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Welcome, Black Light family. I have a special guest back who is here to just talk to us about how we could use podcasts and other media outlets to bring more attention to people with wrongful convictions, first and foremost, because they should come first always. And then, you know, people who, who have unjustly sentences. But Tim, you want to go ahead and offer your expertise? Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be back with the Black Light family. I appreciate the opportunity. It's a, uh, it's been quite a journey and an experience, and I unfortunately I don't think that there are enough people out there bringing awareness or bringing their experience to the table to help people navigate both the benefits and the kind of uh, disadvantages or, or pitfalls that come with different forms of media. You know, your platform and the podcast that you're doing is a huge benefit to people because in this particular fight for wrongful convictions or unjust sentences, a lot of traditional media outlets, you know, your cable TV outlets, they're not interested in a story unless there's some sort of politics behind it or some kind of uh, larger national attention because of the particular atmosphere in society at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it negatively affects the people who have legitimate cases because they don't get any attention. They don't, they're not able to get in front of viewers or listeners. And it's, it's a difficult task to, to find those opportunities when they exist. You know, it is a big opportunity. So kind of giving you a little bit of a background, I had outside of the media attention I had in the first 30 days when I was arrested, until I met my wife, I had zero attention from any form of media outlet, newspaper, podcast, cable news, or any other kind of show. My wife and I met, and she got involved in the case and everything like that. You know, neither of us had any experience of where to start or what to do, but she went out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and tried to contact or reach out to as many people that were involved in the world of wrongful convictions or advocacy work, looking for those opportunities. Um, And you know, we learned by trial and error uh, what to expect or which forms of media were available and, and kind of what they entailed. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first that we got was a Huffington Post piece. We did not know at the time that the individual who was helping us with that piece, that they were paying to place the story in the Huffington Post. We thought it was you know, a news agency that was interested in the story and they do do stories where they're they're the ones who contact somebody, but you can pay to have your story placed the, the same way you could uh, in most local newspapers. It's not a, yeah, it's not a bad thing where you place your own story because sometimes you have to in order to get the first attention, the first eyes or views or listens to your story that helped develop the next level of 
um, you know, media interest. But it's something that people have to be aware of is in that scenario, you're putting your story forward and you can say whatever you want to say. From an outside perspective, people who are viewing or listening to your story or reading your story, they have, even if they don't intend to, they have an unconscious bias towards people who tell their own story. Mm-hmm. And it's understandable, you know, there's not a lot of people that are going to go out there and batten off themselves. They're going to tell the story from the best possible perspective because they're trying to get help. And so that plays against you a bit. Now, until you get some attention, sometimes you have to go out there and you have to promote your own story to get started. But if the opportunity arises where you have somebody reach out to you or somebody that is independent to your situation, your story, who's taking an interest in your case or your story and talking on your behalf, that helps and people put a lot of value in that because it's independent. Um, right. You know, there's that one step of uh, separation that hopefully brings some honesty to the story. And so after that, we started looking at what was available from a media standpoint. And the next one that we got some interest from was uh, a journalist named Kate Stanton from Melbourne, Australia. Most people that follow my case know that Daniel's from Australia and she had mentioned something to someone and it ended up getting to this journalist, Kate Stanton, and she took a, an interest in our story. And it had just so happened that in the few years uh, surrounding the time that I met my wife, there had been a lot of stories in Australian news about the prison system in the United States and how unjust it was, how fair it was, how many people they incarcerate. And they had mentioned, you know, if you're interested in reaching out to inmates in the United States, you know, here are six of the top pin pal sites that you can go find inmates on. <laughs> and I had just happened to put a legal ad in on one of those pen pal sites. And my wife was going through looking at all these advertisements and she said she found the one that she thought was the least of a playboy and most likely to tell the truth. She wrote me, and that's how we met. And this journalist, Kate Stanton, this was an opportunity for her to write a story about almost the next step in that storyline that had been in the news in Australia as far as somebody having met somebody here in the United States who was claiming innocence and was fighting a, you know, a case of injustice. And so she did it amazing article in the largest newspaper in Australia, The Age. And, you know, she really told the story from not just our perspective as far as my fighting my case and my wife having met me and her interest in trying to understand the system and, and, and what was happening in the United States, but, you know, as, as well as the natural skepticism that people have and should have about stories and you know, relationships and, and all that. So that was really awesome. We got a lot of great international attention in my case. And that kind of sparked the next level of media interest in my case. There was a journalist that Keith Stanton knew and that uh, worked for 60 Minutes Australia, which is the 
part of the same 60 Minutes franchise that everybody knows here in the United States. You have 60 Minutes in the United States, 60 Minutes Australia, they have another country. They, along with several other organizations, had reached out and were wondering if, you know, we'd be willing to do a story with them. And we considered the different opportunities and, and options and all. And uh, we ultimately settled with 60 Minutes Australia. And I will say, and I know Danielle would say the same thing, the journalists that we worked with and his team, they were phenomenal. They actually were trying to pair us up with another story of someone who had met on the inside and, uh, and ultimately got out of prison and they were living together, I believe, in Pennsylvania. And they wanted to kind of show, you know, one step being the relationship, the fight inside, and then kind of the life after you get out that the other uh, couple was experiencing. And so they they actually flew my wife here and a friend of hers and the whole journalism team here, and they did interviews in Richmond and came up and interviewed me at Buckingham and did a whole lot of video footage and everything. And the story that they put together was phenomenal. Um, it was going to be both our stories for an entire hour segment and they gave us the air date. And the night before it was supposed to air, one of the higher powers that be in 60 Minutes Australia decided they were going to re-edit the entire story, change the entire story, and put that on air the next night without any of the journalists knowing about it, without notifying anybody or anything. They basically turned the story almost into a smear campaign of my wife and the fact that you know, how dare you write a, you know, a prisoner or somebody who's, you know, convicted and incarcerated for a murder. And the journalist called us up, went, I called my wife up after it aired and apologized to her and said, we don't know what happened and why it happened and we do not agree with this. And as it turned out, there had been some, I guess, negative publicity. And so they just used us conveniently to satiate the appetite of the negative publicity and trying to make it seem like, well, we don't really support uh, supporting prisoners, but, you know, it was just a story. And so that experience kind of, you know, one, it wasn't as bad for me because I wasn't dealing with it directly. There was a lot of sleaze papers that, uh, like magazines, like Cosmo-type magazines that put out all kinds of front-page like, our picture was on the front pages of all kinds of magazines, you know. I married a murderer. And that is so disgusting. Just, like, that is really disgusting is. and troubling because I blame the narrative that, especially America, has put out that once somebody is labeled, that you deem them for that label, but you don't actually look into what actually happened, knowing that United States is not a fair, just system at all, and they will go to high hell lengths to keep people incarcerated or to incarcerate somebody so that they could make money off of them. And so that is very troubling and disgusting. And that's why I created Black Light is to change that narrative, to shift the narrative for you all to be able to tell your side of the story without biased thought, without being judged and be welcome in a community that understands what you're going through and knows that the system is not fair at all. And I'm glad that you you guys have been able to have some type of media exposure because I haven't. Like, I've reached out to investigators with newspapers, and it's just like nobody's interested. And so I do blame the media because they aren't helping 
they could be a huge help. Like if they would go back and investigate some of these cases, which they are supposed to be investigative journalists, then I think that that would help ease mass incarceration instead of just depending on attorneys that we really can't depend on because for one, they're overworked. Two, some are just not interested in your case for whatever reason it is, probably because it's not a, a mainstream case. But I mean, yeah, media could be a big difference, a big change maker if they would really just get behind people. And I feel like we can't get that here. It's hard to get somebody to write a story about you or truly investigate Absolutely. your wrongful conviction. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm sure you, you're aware, as many listeners are, you know, there's such a thing as trial by media. Yeah. The media has an obligation, a responsibility to be accountable for the stories and the agendas they're pushing. They're quick to push guilt, mm-hmm. but not innocence. And yet they are credited with the reason why a lot of people are convicted. It's why prosecutors, why, you know, police officers go to the media with their story before you've even been arrested or as soon as you're arrested, before you even have a chance to know what they're claiming to have arrested you for or the evidence against you. And they're already creating a spin story to sell a conviction that in most cases they don't have the evidence to prove and they're utilizing that story to convince you. They're, they're, mm-hmm. and, and, and that trial by media is so difficult to fight against. You know, we all know yeah. first impressions, you it's know, the lasting impression that people are left with. <laughs> exactly. And so if the first impression is 30 days of media blasting you as some horrid criminal, the public doesn't care, unfortunately, about the truth or believing that the media isn't telling the truth, they just go with the story they're being told and they trust that somehow that's the truth. Let me ask you this. Was your case blown in the media? Like, was it in every newspaper? Because my husband's was. It was in every county newspaper, like, blown up way out of proportion. Like, it really hurt his his image. Like, front news. I don't know how far my story made it as far as, you know, was it in Richmond or not? I don't know. But I do know that in Amherst County and the surrounding areas where News Air in Advance is owned by Media General and they have all the papers and all the TV stations there, I was on the news every single news cycle, 6 a.m., 10 a.m., noon, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10 at night, every day for 30 days. I was in every newspaper, and they were claiming they had evidence and claiming facts about the case. That to this day they can't prove and never have proved. Exactly. Or that I've proved were false. Right. Until they ultimately arrested my co-defendant, what became my co-defendant. At that point in time, the special prosecutor went to the judge and got an immediate gag order put in place so the media could not report anymore on the case because they did not want the media reporting on the fact that a cop from, a cop from that county who was part of the investigation until two weeks before my trial his son was arrested as a prime suspect. And if you can't so, see the unfairness in that, then I don't know what. So you were blasted, but oh, then absolutely. as soon as he became the co-defendant, it's like, nope, gag, we're not talking about anything, that's it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so most people will, will learn, if, depending on how much they follow my case, 90% of the media coverage or attention I've had in my case has come from overseas. We had six minutes Australia and and that experience, you know, like I said, was very traumatic for Danielle. And it made us really realize if we're ever going to get involved in any kind of 
media kind of stories or, or any attention that the media is interested in bringing to my case, we're really going to have to stipulate contractually that even if it is independent, you're going to have to tell us what the story is before it goes to air. And you can't just go and change it based on the whims of politics or storylines. or what's, And that's hard because you need the attention and if you dictate too much, then they're just not going to be interested in doing your story. But if you don't dictate some sort of boundaries, you know, they'll use you for their own interest mm-hmm. and throw you under the bus. And so, you know, we mostly just talked about the case on social media ourselves, you know, audio blogs or um, tweets or Instagram posts and all uh, to promote the case as much as we could on our own. Mm-hmm. Um, Danielle's been doing and, an amazing job with that. that. Yes, she has done phenomenal at it. And um, so that led to the next. Ultimately, like I said, most of the attention that we had was what we generated on you know, social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram. And during this period of time that we were going through all this, my wife had actually made contact with a gentleman named Jason Flom, who is a founding board member of the New York Innocence Project with Derek Peter Kessel. And he is CEO and founder of Lava Records in New York, and he does a, an immense amount of advocacy work for wrongful convictions and unjust sentences. And he got involved in my case and was using some of his contacts to reach out to people and try to find people that would be interested in my case. And he spoke to an attorney here in Virginia, Ms. Emily Munn, and she came and visited me with him. And looked over my case and everything. She's a criminal defense lawyer, not an appellate attorney, but she reviewed my case and has expressed interest in representing me if I ever go back to trial or, or able to get to that criminal level again. And it just so happened that she started teaching a constitutional law class at Georgetown University, 18. It also happened to be the first year that the law, law students there, their professor, Mr. Mark Howard was starting a project called Making an Exoneree. Mm-hmm. He started it with a friend of his, Marty Tinkless, who had been wrongfully convicted of the double murder of his parents, and that Mark Howard and Jason Long had been a part of the team who proved his innocence. And he had got out, got his law degree, and got a professorship at Georgetown with Mark Howard. And they were starting this Making His Honorary Project, and the premise of it was for third-year students to pick four cases from the United States that they felt there was compelling evidence or story of innocence, and then to work with a filming company named Rock Island Films out of California uh, with the Dorfman's, Robinson and Dorfman, to do a eight-minute documentary talking to experts, lawyers, family members, witnesses, laying out the basis for why they believe these people were innocent and had a claim for innocence in hopes to bring attention and get lawyers or investigators involved in their case. And they had already picked four cases for that inaugural class, but one of them had to be dropped due to some uh, issues in the investigation. And they didn't have another case lined up, and she heard about it and recommended my case. So 
I was fortunate enough to be one of the first four for the first uh, making exonerate class. The documentaries were they held their the public viewing at Georgetown in May of 2018. It was myself, John Moss, Valentina Dixon, and Kenneth Bond. Valentina Dixon ultimately proved his innocence and was released in 2019. Kenneth Bond uh, proved his innocence and was uh, released earlier this year. Unfortunately, John Moss had done 42 years in West Virginia, had been exonerated and reconvicted three times on faulty bite mark evidence as the only evidence against him. And he was expected to go back to court and be released and uh, died of a fatal heart attack in January of 2020. Um, so I'm the only one left of that inaugural class that hasn't um, been released yet or unfortunately passed on. Um, but that uh, public viewing uh, at Georgetown ultimately got the attention of several people on Cuff the Innocence um, that got involved in my case as a result of Michelle Malkin, a journalist with uh, Fox and Friends at the time. Um, she had actually done a story on another case that Uncuffed Innocence was representing and had mentioned something about my case to them, and they ultimately got involved in my case. Then also, uh, one of the students recommended my case to an investigator out of New York that was lending his services pro bono to help developing cases for the documentary. And he's now been on my case since late 2018, and we ultimately were uh, contacted by an Alexandra Spector, uh, who is, my understanding, freelance journalist who kind of did uh, some work uh, for a show called Reasonable Doubt that was on investigative discovery. And at the time they reached out to us, they had done two uh, seasons. I think they did 10 cases each season. Uh, each season is done once a year. And she reached out to us, and we declined the offer to be on that show because we were in the middle of investigating my case, and we didn't want to have a conflict of them and people working in my case, contacting the same people, and, and also we respectfully declined it. And then, you know, they let us know if we were ever interested again to so reach out to them. So in 2020, when COVID hit, shut down everything and there was nothing going on with the case anymore. We reached out to them and said we were interested in talking to them about the specifics of doing that show. And so Alexander Spector kind of started the process, but she ultimately turned it over to the co-executive producer for Reasonable Doubt, Desmond Simon. And the premise of the show, according to their advertisements and what they claim, is that it is an independent investigation with an attorney, uh, Fatima Silva, on staff, and a former homicide detective, I believe Georgia, somewhere down south under that, named Chris Anderson. And that, you know, they go back and they request the original records of your case, and they go back and talk to the witnesses, and talk to family members. And I think they show on A&E. It might be now. It was on investigative discovery. It is on, you're right. You're exactly right. I've watched it a few times. It might have moved to a &E. No, you're right. It's still on ID. You're right. You're right. Yep. Okay. They promote it as being a completely independent investigation where they go out and get experts. They, they want to take three areas to really target in your case that would potentially demonstrate reasonable doubt in your guilt. 
and they, they say they're going to go get experts in those three areas to review the records and the evidence and to kind of opine on that evidence and whether it shows reasonable doubt in your guilt. And so we sent numerous emails back and forth, hours and hours of phone calls. I was making an hour or two phone calls every single day with them for several months, giving them my story and details and specifics. Uh, I made my website available. I made evidence that we have recovered since the trial available. Uh, my family, every witness in the case, um, everybody was made available to them so they could talk to whoever they wanted to on their turn. And as we approached the time that they had set to come to Virginia and film, talking to my family and witnesses and, you know, getting the uh, experts involved in the three areas that they had chosen, cell phone, uh, trajectory, and... Uh, closer to that time, there started to be some questions about what they had advertised versus what they were actually doing. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we learned that, in fact, it wasn't as independent as they claimed it was. They were scripting everything. They were going to predetermine what your family was going to say, the people they talked to were going to say, and what response they should have. And so that, that started to become a question, and I kept stressing to them, no, there's nothing that you can't ask. If you ask them anything, you know, I'm more than happy to you tell know, you. Open the closet up, you can look for spider webs, cobwebs, whatever you want. You know, I'm not hiding anything. And they're like, no, 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 it's, you know, we'll know exactly what's going to be said and everything like that. So they did it, and uh, they came down and filmed. And before they leave, they tell your family that they filmed what their determination is, whether they believe there's reasonable doubt in your guilt or whether they believe that you're guilty, so that they can capture that on film. And so they came back to my family and said, you know, based on our, you know, our discovery and, you know, our investigation and everything like that, we believe he's actually guilty and deserves to die behind bars. And my family directly challenged them. <laughs> they told them, no, 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 you can't challenge anything. You, either, you know, we're just telling you this is what it is. Tell us what your reaction is. So they tried to challenge what they were telling them, you know, and specific evidence and everything. And they were like, no, no, no. And so after they went, they left, you know, I called them up to, you know, hear what they had to say, what their determination was. And I directly challenged everything. And I knew for a fact that what they were claiming was false, wasn't true, that they were lying about having access to information or not information or statements that they claimed they had that I knew for a fact they did not have. And uh, I told them, you know, I said, you're absolutely wrong and I would prove you wrong. Uh, and they kept trying to tell me, well, you keep sticking to your truth. And I said, it's not my truth. It's the truth. Not truth. <laughs>
all kinds of records and contracts and everything. And they did everything that they said they wouldn't do. So we started doing more investigative work and research and started reaching out to some of the people involved in my case and started doing some deeper investigative work. And we found out that their entire show and the entire premise of their show is a fraud. What? Are you serious? Absolutely everything. And we're not the only ones that have challenged them on that. Um, the year that my season went to air, uh, there was 10 cases. There's at least two other cases that are high-profile cases. And the wife of one of the gentlemen who's high-profile cases out west that they did that year, she got a hold of some journalists who started doing a whole bunch of investigative journalism to expose the fraud. And the reasonable doubt of organization and ID discovery, they went after them with lawyers and lawsuits and everything. They went on the offensive, attacking anybody that would speak out against them. And ultimately, that investigative journalist kind of backed down and backed away from the story because of the amount of legal problems that you know they were bringing to bear to try to quiet that story but if they want to sue me they're more than welcome to i'm locked up i'm in here they're a fraud the first three seasons that they did they did only african-american cases every case they said there was reasonable doubt in the person's guilt in my season they did almost all or all of the cases were white cases very high profile cases every single one of them they said there was 100% certainty we were guilty. There was no reasonable doubt in our in our guilt. There was no way we were innocent. Well, you know, I've only watched that show maybe about three times because, I mean, to me, I feel like a lot of shows that come on television are telegraphed anyway, and I feel like they're really not the truth. But I do, I think I did watch that season where it was a lot of people, white people that were on there, and a lot of them, what you could tell that a lot of it was scripted but, I mean, yeah, they said that they were guilty. And so I was going to reach out because my mom's like, well, why don't you reach out to them? And then I just, something told me not to. And I'm just like, and I looked at the episode like once or twice because I haven't really watched many seasons. And I'm just like, no, something was like, no, it's something not right about this show. <laughs> but, you know, the investigator, the black guy, you know, he used to be a detective or a police officer in Atlanta because he was on A&E. Like he used to be on 48 Hours. Or something. Yes. I think I'll so. I'll give you a little bit of background from the investigative work that we did. One, Fatima Silva, the attorney that's on their staff that they claim is this experienced attorney, she's not. Look into her, where she got her degree and her credentials, they're suspect at best. At best. <laughs> she was working as an immigration attorney in a small law firm in California with an older uh, attorney there. And she ultimately bought out his practice, you know, when he retired or passed away. And so she used that buying out her the practice to claim that she represented more than immigration cases, even though that wasn't her, quote, expertise. And she teamed up with Reasonable Doubt because she needed attention to grow her profile as an attorney, because she wasn't an attorney of any value or weight. To, you know, she, had, she didn't carry any real... Uh, connections or anything like that. She needed that attention, and that's what Reasonable Doubt brought her in, who is this, you know, homicide detective from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I believe his entire career was only like 18 years, 20 years, and if you pull up what he did and, 
experience. He has, for being in Atlanta, he has very little experience. It's a wonder made the least dinner with him. And so, you know, they use him and they use Reason Without him. And it is, you know, having been on other shows to kind of bring notoriety to the show or some, somehow make it seem like he's more experienced than he is. Wow, I didn't know that. His background is different. Hers was more of a racial justice advocate for the for for African Americans and, and racial disparities and you know the idea that the you know U.S. justice system is racist and out to get African Americans. She really came from more of a um, racial psychological kind of background. She was more of a social worker type. Um, background and <laughs> investigate and I, I, I challenge anybody uh, that really is interested in, in getting involved in their case do your investigative work do not assume that it, because it looks good and sounds good that it is good because we started investigating not just the experts they claim to have used in, in my episode but the experts they claim to use in all their episodes and none of them are experts by legal definition or by court definition. None of them. Oh my now, goodness! What wow. What doing is say they had a case involving video surveillance. Mm-hmm. They would go find the local guy in town where they were going to talk about this case. You know, with his family, they'd go find the local Radio Shack owner, store owner, and be like, "Hey, look, we need an expert to opine on this video surveillance." If you'll do it for us, we'll bring you attention to you and your store by naming you as an expert in our episode that goes national. So they were doing a quid pro quo. You do me a favor, I do you a favor. We don't care about your credentials. We don't. We don't care if you know anything about video surveillance or technology or anything like that. Just you know, say something that sounds important. So, like in my case, they went and psychologist about whether or not the number of times that I called a individual on my cell phone records meant that I was in a relationship with them. And all they showed her was the calls I made to that person, not the calls I made to every, the background or anything. Just that. And said, hey, did these 400 calls over six months mean they're in a relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It gives some safety psychological reason for it. The trajectory analysis, they hired some redneck somewhere who literally was in somebody's backyard in the woods at a trailer park, hanging out of their trucks with laser tag guns going, yeah, we can't really recreate the trajectory. It's going to be hard to do it the way they claim he did it. So there's probably some issues there with that. And he went and talked to somebody that worked at a cell phone store about cell phone technology. And they didn't know anything about cell phone technology, let alone the little bit that they were giving them was, as it turned out, everything that they had claimed was not true. For instance, they claimed that they went and got copies of all my case files and all my original records from the court. And they made claims on not only the show, but on the podcast that they had after the show that they had recovered records that I had never seen and that proved some nefarious, you know, evidence of my guilt. Of course, they wouldn't provide it to us. They wouldn't tell us what it was. They wouldn't even tell the audience what it was. But I can tell you that they lied. For effect, because I decided to write the courts and ask them, hey, you know, I know this show, Reasonable Doubt, reached out to you 
requesting copies of all my records in my case. I'm just curious, you know, what records you turned over to them because they're claiming they, you know, got records that I've never seen before. And on my website, I literally have every piece of discovery as listed by the prosecutor turned over on the final day when trial started. I have every single one on my website. So if they found something that I've never seen before, then that means that something was withheld from me, which would be gross misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct. And the only reason why it wouldn't be turned over is because it benefited proving my innocence. They did not hide something that helped them prove my guilt. So I challenged them on it. They wouldn't tell me. So I wrote the court. And the court actually wrote me back and sent me a copy of the original request for records by reasonable doubt. And they wrote me back and said, in response to an updated letter requesting investigatory materials regarding Timothy Wainwright Jr., the conviction for the murder of Justin Bumgarner, you also requested materials related to the disappearance and death of Justin Bumgarner. The court does not have any investigative materials related to this case, nor any materials related to the disappearance of Justin Bumgarner. Any police investigatory materials would be in the possession of law enforcement unless the evidence or documents were submitted as evidence in court. In the event that your letter seeks to obtain evidence from trial, then your specific request should be directed to the clerk of court. And the judge signed off on that three months after they completed my, my episode. They never got a single document from the court. Not a single one. So, so how could you make a story when you didn't even go? That, you know, that is crazy. Exactly. And that proves that it's not independent. They're not accessing records. As it turned out, they had reached out to a number of witnesses that were used by the prosecutor in my case or that were prosecutorial witnesses, whether they actually testified in court or not. They didn't reach out to any of the defense witnesses, just the prosecutorial ones. And we had several of them reach out to my wife and say, hey, we were contacted by this place, and they asked us all kinds of questions, and we told them, look, we don't know a bad thing about him. As it turned out, Nobody would speak bad about me. Nobody had anything bad to say about me. And it rather irritated or pissed them off that they couldn't find anything on me. And so we found out after the fact, after we had gone through everything and all the recording and started questioning what was going on, that the intent of that entire season was to find every possible way to say that these people were guilty because they had been catching a lot of flack in the previous cases in the previous three seasons where they said there was reasonable doubt in the guilt of people. As it turned out, some of those people, since those stories had aired, were proven to be absolutely guilty. And that there was no doubt. That they were guilty. Wow. But then they said they were innocent. Exactly. So the show started coming under scrutiny, and people were saying things. So to balance that, just like 60 Minutes Australia did, they threw everybody in season four, in my season, under the bus and said everybody was guilty. Despite us being some of the most high-profile cases, having some of the most evidence, most support of independent people. So one of the people we reached out to was a cell phone expert. We found one of the world's foremost cell phone experts. He owns, he created and owns most of the encryption and security technology used by cell phone companies and banks around the world today. All he does is volunteer his time in innocence cases or cases of all these cell phone records. His name is Michael Cherodino, Cherry Biometrics in Northern Virginia. And he is 
a well-known expert in the field of cell phone technology. He's in all sorts of articles in major newspapers and scientific, or, you know, scientific journals. And he said, look, he said, I will absolutely go to court. You get an attorney to pick up your case, I will go to court on your behalf, not just in your case. But he said, I will testify against reasonable doubt in that their expert wasn't an expert and he was full of baloney, just like the expert that the prosecutor supposedly used in your case wasn't a legitimate expert. And he said, I can explain it. Here's where the articles are that have been published in journals showing what the te te technology is and what the true evidence is and how prosecutors are manipulating the, the system with these false experts to get people convicted of crimes that the technology proves they're innocent of. So I had him. We... That is not even legal. It's not even legal. I mean, like let let a let a defense attorney bring an expert that's not credible in there and see what happens. See see what happens. Exactly. And, and, and there's very clear laws on what criteria you have to meet in order to be an expert. And yes, sir. Pretty lax. And so if a defense attorney doesn't challenge their credibility, nobody's ever going to know the lies. I just knew, and I didn't do it. I did not commit the crime. I didn't know why what he was saying was wrong. I couldn't explain the technology, but I knew what he was saying was a lie. Was I wrong. knew I wasn't there. Right. And it took me all this time to find somebody who could explain it. But now I know. I can explain it to anybody that wants to know. All this to say that while media attention can be beneficial, and a lot of people are looking for media attention to help bring attention to a wrongful conviction or an unjust sentence, the pitfalls of dealing with people who have no scruples, no virtues, no principles, no morals, is dangerous because they will throw you under the bus after you've done everything you can to make sure information is presented accurately, honestly, you know, with a fair view of it. And I don't expect everybody to agree with my position or my innocence. I don't expect everybody to agree with the view that some people take on certain evidence, you know, and and I welcome that because, you know, any challenge just makes it that much better for me when I do prove my innocence because I get to take on each one of these challenges and prove each one of them wrong. And so, you know, it's that iron sharpens iron. You know what I'm saying? You need that negative to balance the positive in order to bring integrity to your story, to your case. So I welcome it. But when they just outright throw you under the bus, bus. lie, yeah. present false information, make false claims, use false experts. There's more than just it affecting me or my wife or, you know, violating integrity or principles or morals. This has a direct effect on the person who's truly innocent. You are convincing people that are convinced solely by media and what media tells them that this person is not a worthy cause. You are setting back their opportunity to prove their innocence because now they're going to spend years trying to overcome that false negative publicity. Now they've got to fight a second case of trying to prove that this person said something that was false, that was wrong, just to have a chance to prove their innocence. You are keeping that innocent person in prison that much longer. Longer, yep. And hindering them from actually getting help because that's going to make people be like, oh, well, they lied about that. And that's, you know what I'm saying? Like the whole Candace Owens show. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Right. Mm. 
And see that that's that's why I'm I'm thankful that you know I came up with Black Life Incarceration because what I did was I actually advocated for a guy who had the exact same charges as my husband, first degree capital murder. The whole case was like identical to my husband's, and the difference was that when my husband was going through his situation, I wasn't around, but I was around for this guy's situation. And by me going into the, which is crazy, is because. The prosecutor wanted a gag order on his attorney, but the prosecutor was freely going out there talking about the case, but he didn't want the the defense attorney to go talk about it. So they asked me to come in and I came in and I just started interviewing the families. We did a press conference where the news was there. His family was just telling telling them who he was as a person and that he truly did not commit this crime and that this was being blamed on him because the prosecutor used to be his uh, attorney at one time, right? And told him that, you know, if I was the prosecutor, I would have prosecuted you. Well, he got the chance to do that. And he really tried to take this man's life by giving him capital murder. And just by me being there to advocate and put his story out and the news actually put his story out with mine, that they found him not guilty on capital murder. So having pre-advocacy, especially during pre-trial, is extremely important for the defense. And I want defense attorneys to reach out more to people who are advocating to help them get the story out of their client to shift the narrative because we have been fed the narrative of the state and what the media wants people to know. And it's not the truth. And that's why I made black light incarceration because so many people are incarcerated for crimes they didn't commit, including us, who only hear, everybody only hears the side of the prosecutor. They don't ever hear the true side of the person that's being accused of this crime, whether they were there and whether it happened and the evidence showing that they wasn't there. So this is why I created this space so people can tell their story and feel safe about it and have a community that understands and welcomes them, and hopefully help advocate for their innocence. And that, that is the, the opportunity and the immense benefit of having independent journalism like Black Life uh, been on Surviving the System, former incarcerated guy who fought, fought with his case and ultimately you know, started a podcast these are individuals who are not tied to politics, to, you know, the financial uh, control of a parent company that's dictating what's good for business. Mm-hmm. You know, these are independent journalists who are, who are just out to, you know, talk about the facts, to present the information, to give people an opportunity to see the truth versus a narrative that somebody wants to sell because of some benefit, some direct uh, connection to that. And, and that, you know, I can't stress that enough to people, you know, look somewhere other than your traditional... The mainstream media. Mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Look for independent journalists who are willing to tell the truth, who are willing to share the story and the facts that exist and aren't biased by outside influences. Yeah. It may be a smaller audience, but it's going to be a more honest audience. They're going to get the truth. And with time, as this grows, as the movement of independent journalism grows, it will start to supplant the 
larger mainstream media that is clean. Pre-drafted biased narrative to, you know, a story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely, I appreciate it. I definitely appreciate it. Cause my experiences have been both good and, and bad, yeah. you know, along the way, and I've learned a lot from it. Well, I thank you for this conversation because, I mean, I was feeling the same way about media, just not the way that we've been treated and not really getting any response and people just throwing us to the next person. And it's important that the media understands that there are people that's wrongfully convicted and they need your help to, you know, investigate the story and, and show the true facts of how the state got it wrong, because that's the reason why. You have so many people wrongfully convicted. That's the reason why I say people are blindfolded by the truth of justice because they've made it, they've pounded in our heads and had this straight narrative that you're, you did this crime. And, and because the prosecution has these experts and have this evidence that you did this crime, not knowing a lot of that evidence is padded evidence. The experts are not experts and there's a bunch of junk science, which I'm glad that that's starting to be talked about now that a lot of that stuff is junk science that you can't depend on DNA to be 99.9% accurate because that's not always true <laughs> as we see. And so it's important. Well, I, can, I can definitely attest to that. If you ever get a chance, look up the National Academy of Sciences 2009 report on uh, the administration of justice, forensics and administration of justice. They debunked every form of forensic science, including nucleus DNA, every single one of them. If you ever read a book on DNA, read one by a lady. She wrote a book called Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. It will scare the living hell out of people. I believe it. It will definitely make them realize DNA, while DNA is a legitimate forensic science, how it is interpreted and how it can get to somewhere that has nothing to do with you having committed a crime. Uh, will scare people. Absolutely. Yeah, I've even read that about like bullets and fingerprints on bullets and then them, you know, how they match the bullets. Like all of that is not what they yeah. make it out to be. It's really not. It's so no. I'm glad that we had this conversation. And Blacklight, believe it or not, we have a large following. Uh, we have people in Canada, of course, Germany, of course, Australia, and just different parts of the United States. We have almost 2,000 downloads. So I'm hoping that, you know, the more that me and you, that you're on this show, that, you know, we're educating the people. And then it's also getting you the attention that you need. Because I know on my Twitter or on my social media, I do support you and Danielle um, and my husband because both of you all are wrongfully convicted. And it just seems like we're being overlooked all the time. And so it's important to always keep that in the spotlight that we know you are wrongfully convicted. We see it and we understand it and we're here. Yeah. Well, I definitely do, do what I can on my, on my platforms and, and all to promote what you're doing and, and your journalism and talk, telling the truth about, you know, what's really happening in the system. It's definitely, it's a needed, definitely a needed thing. And, uh, yeah, everybody's got to stick together. Yeah. I mean, it takes a village. You have to support one another and you have to be yeah. a village to, to bring change. And I, I feel like we're going to bring a change because we just have to. It's just too much going on. I think the narrative is starting to shift that a lot of people are seeing that our government is not trustworthy on anything, which they're not. No. Well, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Yeah. I, uh, 
I definitely hope that it can bring some benefit to others in their in their journey of fighting for their innocence or unjust sentences. And I certainly hope that it'll be some action in your husband's case. Yeah, it's very slow, but we're going to keep fighting just like we're fighting for you, Tim. We're going to keep fighting for him, and hopefully it'll work out. All right, Tim, take care. Thank you for being on. All right, bye-bye. You too. Well, Black Light, thank you for tuning in for another episode. Tim has been wonderful. I'm glad that he brought up that particular uh, conversation because I think it needs to be had how media can hinder people who are wrongfully convicted from getting help by telling false narratives. And so this is why, once again, we have created the Black Light Mass Incarceration Show to change that narrative, to shift that narrative back to where it's supposed to be, for people to truly understand what's going on and to advocate for what's right and not for the wrong things and not to get caught up in media propaganda because that's exactly what it is, is propaganda. So you guys... Thank you so much for all your support. We love you tons. Keep supporting. Keep listening, sharing, liking, subscribing. We are on Twitter as well. Not, sorry, not Twitter. YouTube. We're on YouTube. So please check us out. Show us some love. Like, subscribe, and share. And just keep fighting the good fight. You know, you're going to get knocked down, but you have to get back up. Because if you don't keep fighting, then, you know, you're just going to you're going to be in a hole. And so we have to move forward and shift this paradigm that we have to a better, to better suit those that are incarcerated and to help them get the freedom and justice that they deserve. Y'all take care. Love y'all. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.